Welcome to episode six of the Coin Press podcast. I'm Luke Willis. Today, I'm joined by Michael Vandenberg, blockchain architect and co-founder of the Coinos Group. Welcome, Michael. Hi. Thanks uh, for having me, Luke. Good to good to be here. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so you and I actually go way back. Uh, mm-hmm. Michael and I went to college together. We were roommates for a little while, um, and you <laughs> you you were always you you got interested in crypto. A lot earlier than I did. Obviously, you're you're doing this now, and I'm I'm just getting started in the space. Um, but yeah, it's I'm excited to be a part of it now, and uh, looking forward to this conversation. So uh, today we are talking about smart contracts and microservices. So, Michael, we we've talked about. I mean, everybody who's read the white paper knows, um, Coinos is a modular blockchain. There's microservices that do different functions, you can add new microservices, you can, you know, there's a lot of different things you can do. Um, but there's also a lot about smart contracts and how you can add pretty much any functionality from consensus, governance, you name it, as a smart contract. So I'm wondering if you could just clear the air and help me understand what's the difference between microservices and smart contracts? Um, are they the same thing in some cases? Or, you know, is the process different for adding a microservice versus adding a smart contract? Uh, yeah. Uh, so I think this is a really interesting, a really interesting question because um, for developers, in particular, I think um, smart contracts and microservices are two different places that they can interact with the Coinos blockchain. Um, but they serve two two very different purposes, and we'll you know start to get into that. So everyone's we'll start with uh, like everyone. I would imagine most people listening CoinPress are are familiar with Ethereum. You know, at least um, following uh, the it from a a public perspective, even if you've not developed a smart contract. And in Ethereum and in other um, blockchains, the Smart contracts um, run within consensus, and then there are other sort of pieces of utility that the blockchain needs in order to run um, in order to operate efficiently. And so these are things like um, having a P2P network so that different nodes can communicate with one another, um, saving blocks to disk, um, both so you can re-index later um, but also you, so you can help other people get synced up to the blockchain and verify all the state um, running API services, um, having a um, the a mempool of pending transactions so that you can construct a new block and and have some idea of what should go in it. Um, all of those things live within the same process for an Ethereum node, for a Bitcoin node, and all those things exist in Coinos, um, but those those live as microservices. Where they different where they differentiate from smart contracts is smart contracts are what actually are ran in consensus, and effectively the microservices all um, exist to support the blockchain and aren't aren't the blockchain specifically, sure. it, it kind of makes sense. Yeah, I think that makes sense. So 
Um, so just to put it in other terms, then if I uh, want to build an app that runs on the blockchain, that is a smart contract. Correct. Um, oh. and, and then if I wanted to add some utility to blockchain functionality, um, that would be a microservice. Yeah. And so, yeah, so this is, this is where I think things kind of get fun. Okay. So okay. on Ethereum, you can, you could write a smart contract. Um, you know, you, you know, you, you come up with the next Uniswap, right? Something or something better. You can write a smart contract, you can deploy it. And now you have custom functionality running on, on the blockchain. But okay. In order to write your app, you're effectively still limited by the tools that are given to you, which is specifically, well, you can you can make API requests against, um, you know, call uh, read-only functions on your contract. Uh, you can query the API node. Like that's, a, that's a, essentially what you're limited to. And we've we now have all these layer two solutions that are designed to provide additional functionality on top of uh, what, it, what is given to you via uh, non-consensus information. The, okay. the microservices are not a replacement for layer two solutions, um, but they augment how you can implement a layer two solution. So if... Yeah, if there's some behavior you need, um, you can implement that as a microservice. And, and specifically what we've done with Coinos um, is from, uh, I guess I'll give you a little bit of history. Um, and for those that aren't familiar with the uh, Steam code base, um, so Steam was the, the blockchain I worked on prior to Coinos. Um, it had a plugin based architecture. And so all within the same process, we had different plugins that, that could run. And, and so Steam had a whole suite of non-consensus plugins um, that tracked, uh, like, we, you know, for, to support steamit.com, um, we tracked, you know, uh, who was following who. Um, we had this whole reputation score. A few things like that were all non-consensus meaning they were derived state from what we are observing in consensus, but uh, had no capability of rejecting transactions. And so we, we needed, we wanted this information to provide the user experience we desired for the steamit.com front end, but was not required for the consensus logic of the blockchain in particular. Sure. And so we we added that functionality via plugins, and there were a number of communication patterns that became common in all of these plugins that were sort of formalized in Steam and have influenced how we've designed the microservice architecture. And so the microservice architecture now are, sends... Uh, messages back and forth between these microservices. So as an example, uh, let's let's look at what would happen for block for, for you get a block on the P2P network. 
Um, you're connected on the P2P network and some someone connected to says, hey, I heard about this new block. Maybe you want to apply it. So your, your P2P microservice then sends a message. Um, actually, it, uh, yeah, it requests um, that a block be applied to the, uh, we call it the chain microservice, but that's the actual blockchain. So it, it sends the block there. The block is applied. If it succeeds, the P2P service, microservice, both gets a response back that says we were successful, in which case it knows that you know everything worked, that's a good peer. If, if it was unsuccessful, we would there's there's some logic now to uh, determine whether or not maybe that peer is misbehaving, maybe we should disconnect from them, maybe it was a, a genuine error. Um and then the chain microservice also broadcasts a message um, to all microservices that are listening that says, hey, I got a new block. And so the uh, we have a microservice called Block Store, which saves all, the host, all of the blocks historically. So it's listening to that broadcast, saves the block. Um, at the same time, the mempool is also listening to that broadcast. And uh, when it gets a new block, it goes through all the transactions and removes them from the mempool so that they're not added in a future block. And then if you're running a block producer, that can also trigger, um, you know, if anybody who's on the test net, there's a, there's a message in the block producer that says block is stale, retrieving new head. That's, that's a signal that, hey, I just heard a new, a new block. Let me make sure that, let's see if that block was the new head or not. If, if it is, then I'll start mining on that block. And so all of these things trigger um, asynchronously. And the way we've designed it is you can write a microservice that listens to the same events. And so in the same way, you just sort of tap in to the communication that's already going on and you can add functionality. Um, we, and then we even have, um, let's see, I don't believe it's live on the test net, um, but it will, it, but we've added functionality in the, uh, as a system call that will allow a smart contract to, um, to log an event that will also actually be broadcast out via the microservice message passing, which means you can write a, a smart contract that exists entirely in consensus, but it can, you can then write a corresponding microservice that is sort of interacting directly with your smart contract. That is responding to things that happen within your smart contract. So if you need, um, if you want to write a, a smart contract that has some more complex behavior and maybe has a non-consensus component to it, a layer two component, you can write that layer two component in a microservice um, in whatever language you want. Uh, we've chosen this message passing. Um, we're using a, a protocol called AMQP. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's, there's libraries for it in almost every language you can imagine, um, as well as it utilizes protobufs, proto Google's protocol buffers, like the smart contracts do. So they can now... They can now communicate with one another. You can write it in whatever language you want. And we even have it set up so that the our API microservice, our JSON RPC microservice, can interact with 
microservices that other people spin up. And so it's a, it's a way of, of adding non-consensus functionality to a consensus smart contract. Gotcha. And, and sort of have it all using the same standards and protocols that the, the rest of the Coinos node is already using. That's cool. Um, so you, you kept saying non-consensus. Just so we're all clear, can you clarify what you mean by that? Yeah, so uh, consensus is what happens within the blockchain. And specifically, right. um, consensus has the ability to um, reject a block if something doesn't, doesn't match. So um, a double spend, right? You, you try to send coin to two different addresses, consensus stops that from happening sure um and so and 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 that is the whole problem a blockchain is solving this is sort of you could view it as like secondary information um the it is so maybe the best way to think of it is non-consensus uh microservices or applications can read from the blockchain they they can use the blockchain as input as much as they want, but the blockchain is only allowed to use itself as input. Okay. So it's a so you can have a whole bunch of additional information in this other in this non-consensus microservice, but um, the blockchain is not allowed to use that information. Um, if it wants to use right. that information, you need to get it back into. Um, into consensus either by just tracking that data within the smart contract or what a lot of people, you know, a lot of contracts use is oracles, right? Right. Right. Um, and so oracles are, are a, so sort of a broad category of algorithms by which um, a decentralized group of people can input, you know, external data and uh, sort of reach their own consensus about what that external data is so a good example of that is um, is like uh, USD price feeds. If you have a smart contract, it depends on its behavior at a certain point in time. Depends on the value of say your coin compared to the US dollar. Um, well, the US dollar doesn't exist on a blockchain, and so you have to get that data in somewhere else externally. Oracles are a way to do that. Right. Right. Okay, that makes sense. So basically, any any data that is input that needs to end up on the blockchain has to go through block production and get passed through the validators to show we we agree this is all good data we want it on the blockchain. Mm -hmm. But microservices that you can add um, would always be non-consensus. Is that fair to say? Uh, yeah, unless you unless you plan a way to get it back in via an oracle or some other means. Sure. Um, I, I'm using Oracle right now just because that's what's common. Yeah. Um, we, you know, they're, they're, I mean, and obviously that's a, that's a point of research on blockchain is, you know, well, Oracle's work, but you have to trust the Oracle's. Right. Right. And so it is, it is a point of failure. Um, sure. And it'd be, it'd be nice if we had uh, other ways of, of getting data into blockchains that essentially doesn't rely on human error. There, there may not be a way around it, but people are very interested. Yeah, um, a, a little bit off topic, off topic, but I, I think the um, the Oracle problem is it's really specific to the type of data, right? Mm -hmm. Where if you have 
data that can really only be verified by one person, whatever that would be, I don't have a good example, um, then it's hard to reach consensus about that data. Um, mm -hmm. But if you have something that, you know, other people could validate or you have multiple data sources, then it gets a little bit more trustworthy. Mm -hmm. so. Well, or uh, I think a good example of it is um, is NFTs, right? Someone, uh, especially like with the art art NFTs, right? There's a creator, they create an NFT and there's some data that they encode into the NFT that links to something in the real world and says, sure. hey, I'm giving you ownership of this thing. Right. Um, and so they're, well, well, they're the owner of it. They're the only one that's authorized to do that. Um, right. And sort of consensus is reached on the validity of it by people actively trading that NFT, um, essentially by people trying to purchase it or trading it um, over time that lends validity to the data that was, that, that was input. So you, you, I think you could make an argument that those are, those are similar, similar data paths. Sure. Cool. Um, awesome. Okay. So th this is interesting now, Get, getting back to the, the microservices concept. I like the, the idea of creating a microservice to read or respond to data and events on the blockchain. Um, but I'm curious when, I guess, when would you envision somebody reaching for a microservice to do that versus just querying data on the blockchain? I think uh, it depends on what you want your sort of the, the design of your application to be. Um, we, we've sort of talked internally um, about like, well, okay, so if we're building this system, how would we want to use it? And, um, you know, right, sort of, I think that the, the application we've talked in is sort of maybe the simplest application you could imagine for a blockchain, and that's just a block explorer. I want to know what's going on in the blockchain and, uh, you know, how, the, how most of block explorers work is some data encoded in the URL, and that results in some sort of API request that goes out, queries the blockchain, and gets information back. So, you know, if you go to, you know, Etherscan and you put in a transaction ID, well, if that transaction ID doesn't, ex if that transaction doesn't exist, it pops back. It's like, yeah, I don't, I've never heard of that transaction. I don't know what it is. But it'll even pop up. It's like, hey, that's just in the mempool or that's in a block. And it's it's knowing that based on querying of whatever their Ethereum node is on the back end. And it's, it's an accurate way of doing things, um, but it can also be potentially inefficient if you're doing similar queries over and over and over again. And so it sort of requires you to create a solution that caches properly and um, at the right, at the right locations. And we, we sort of had an idea of, well, we could build a, uh, we could build an entirely asynchronous block explorer with the event system and essentially yeah. have some sort of secondary, you know, uh, data, you know, SQL database that, um, you know, we're pulling from more efficiently for a website and we're actively creating webs, you know, we're actively modifying the website via, via um, these events right. rather than doing a query only model. So, so it's sort of a, I guess the, uh, the summarize would be 
do you want to build your application in a pull model or a push model? Sure. And and uh, the the sort of the event system using the messages allows you to build a um, you know in a synchronous push based application right. rather than always querying the blockchain for for events. Right. Yeah, and that's a pretty common architecture for normal websites. Um, mm-hmm. You know, if you're going to go scrape a bunch of news websites and compile that into, I don't know, sports forecasts or something like that, that would be inefficient to run every time somebody hits your website, right? So mm-hmm. that's something where you typically have a batch process running behind the scenes or some kind of polling listener that goes and fetches that information. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Okay. Yeah. The other thing you could do is say, um, uh, say I want to write a trading bot. Sure. I, if I write that as a microservice within my node now, as soon as someone executes trade, um, I'm responding immediately because of, um, and when it comes to trading, you, that could have an appreciable difference over a model that is constantly pulling for something to have changed. Sure. Um, it's, you know, it's more efficient, but also, you know, if you can respond a millisecond faster, that, that might be the difference between executing the trade you want and, ex, you know, and executing yeah. a, a less, uh, a less valuable trade. Sure. That makes sense. Um, that's cool. So let's talk about for microservices, if I go and create a microservice that I want to use for my app, um, I can I can obviously set that up to run on my node. If I go spin up uh, the Coinos blockchain and the various microservices, I can add mine in on my own hardware. Um, mm-hmm. But if I wanted to distribute that, I don't know if you have a good example of when that would be needed. Um, but say I wanted other people to run this microservice as well, so I could get, I don't know. <laughs> I don't have a good example if that would even be necessary. Mm-hmm. Um, getting my microservice distributed uh, would then need to be, uh, I need to do that off chain. There's no way to like package that up so people automatically get my microservice with the Coinhouse blockchain or something like that. Uh, yeah, it would have to be done off chain. So right now, the essentially the way we're packaging everything uh, is via uh, Docker. Sure. So uh, for for those that aren't aware, uh, uh, Docker is a way of running lightweight um, sort of virtual machines, and they're not full fledged right. virtual machines, but a lightweight container. So it's a sandboxed environment. Um, is usually the sort of design usually so it's task specific. And it has just the information it needs to do one particular task um, and is sort of lightweight as possible. And so the, the Coinos node is um, is a bunch of networked containers of these Docker containers, um, right. which is and the, we've, we've chosen to do it this way is because it's, it's actually it's pretty industry standard um, sure. to containerize applications. And in fact, the, you know, Doing a microservice architecture, you know, it's not our idea. It's we're we're following in the the example of other, um, you know, uh, other large projects, um, not necessarily blockchain projects, but um, you know, almost every single 
big tech company you can imagine is, is using a, some sort of microservice architecture behind the scenes. Um, right. And, and the, the big reason why is now, you know, you can run a small specialized piece of software on dedicated hardware and essentially distribute your application across a data center more efficiently. Um, and then the advantage is you can also scale up a particular microservice. And so um, that, that's the other aspect of what we're doing is, um, is you know, uh, theoretically it's supported, but I think there's some corner cases we still need to work out. But our goal is to, is to make the Coinos node, um, each microservice independently scalable. And so if, uh, if you're running a really big API node, you need multiple chain microservices to answer all of the API requests you've got. Um, but you only need say two block stores because it's a stable microservice. It's not being queried very hard. You can run two block stores and then five chains and have them sure. and all still work to have a distributed, um, you know, a, and, and they can all be running on separate pieces of hardware. Um, and then sort of going back then to answer your question, because I kind of rabbit trailed a little bit there. Um, the, it, to get someone else to run, if you have a microservice, you're like, hey, I want other people to run this if they, you know, I don't know, if they, if they want this information or I think it's useful, people want to run it. Um, it would be as simple as um, distributing your microservice as a Docker container. And then people could very easily add it to um, their Coinos node and have it run alongside everything else. Sure. And, and I was like, at, currently, I, I would say that would be the easiest way. Um, and, you know, Docker Hub has great support. Everything is very well integrated. Um, you know, I, I think anybody who, who, who can get a node up and running would, would not have difficulty, you know, taking that one extra step and figuring out how to add an additional uh, microservice to their node. Um, and of course, doing things this way, uh, you know, Docker itself is actually completely orthogonal to um, the rest of the development we're, we're doing. And so if a better technology comes along in the future, um, we could we could very easily, um, you know, utilize that technology instead of Docker. Uh, so trying to trying to keep those components as independent as possible, because um, this industry moves fast, and we're we're trying to build something that is um, that sort of as in, as industry standard as possible. Gotcha. Very cool. Um. Okay. Very cool. So, moving from you know adding my own microservice to the uh, the Coinos mainnet. Um. What about if I'm using the the layer zero aspect of of Coinos to create mm -hmm. my own blockchain, right? Whether that's a, a test net or yeah, you know whatever, so, something I'm creating a new blockchain that is Coinos based. Mm -hmm. um, it seems to me that because of this microservice architecture, I should be able to add whatever functionality I want to my blockchain. Uh, without really needing to understand the inner workings of every every component of the uh, the, the existing Coinos blockchain, mm -hmm. is that is that fair to say? Uh, yes, and that's by design. Okay, cool. Um, that's something we 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 were very we we were cognizant of when designing uh, Coinos is 
Uh, the fact that things are split into microservices makes it easier to understand one component at a time. And if there's, you know, if you're, if you're, if you're doing your own blockchain and, um, I don't know, say needed to add some functionality to the, the P2P, right? Um, you're like, well, everything else looks great, but I really would like to do something else in P2P that's unique to my blockchain. Then you only need to understand the P2P microservice and do modifications there. Um, you don't have to touch everything else. Everything else will just work. Sure. Um, likewise, you might not need any micro modifications. Maybe you're just adding a microservice. Right. Um, also, you know, uh, you know, you're, you're adding um, potentially new or, or drastically different behavior based on what smart contracts you upload and what system calls you override. Um, you know, and, and our goal in all of that is um, so sort of to make things as siloed as possible. So you're making one particular change here. You don't need to understand the rest of, you know, you don't have to understand the rest of the system and certainly, but I, would certainly encourage people to understand as much as they want. Um, but, you know, we're trying to, trying to lower the barriers to entry, both in you can write a microservice in whatever language you want. You know, right. we're, we're setting up the framework and the groundwork to be able to write a smart contract in whatever language you want and essentially make developers feel at home, at home no matter what they're doing on Coinos. And so yeah. while... While Coinos is is written in C and going, if eventually you want to write a you know you want to do everything in JavaScript and write smart contract in JavaScript and microservices in JavaScript, even if nothing else is JavaScript, like we want you to be able to do that and and it be a you know a first class experience. Very cool. Um, for the uh, the existing microservices, I, I don't expect you would have any plans right now for this, but. Um, have you considered, uh, you know, writing versions of the existing microservices in other languages so that, um, you know, if somebody's coming and, and wants to modify P2P, as an example, um, mm -hmm. they don't have to learn that specific language just to make that change? Um, so I would say, well, we don't have any, we don't have any plans to do so. Right. Um, right now, I think that's a fantastic idea for a lot of different reasons. Um, sure. Uh, having examples in the other languages is great. Also, um, one of the things I really respect about and admire about Ethereum is that there are multiple different language implementations of Ethereum. And so um, it, uh, it helps you not... Uh, have a sort of a language specific bug, if you will, you know? Um, and in fact, I, maybe a year or two ago, there was a heart, there was a theory, the Ethereum network forked because there was a bug that existed only in the go implementation of Ethereum. Okay. And so, um, having, um, having different people running different language, you know, different, essentially, Software that is the exact same thing, but written in different languages helps you identify, oh, well, we accidentally made this bug here because, and maybe one particular language is more prone to a certain type of bug than other ones. Sure. Um, you know, you can have reference implementations. So there's, there's a, I think there's some 
some very compelling reasons to want to do something like that. And I really like the idea. Um, I wish we had the time right now to do something like that, but unfortunately pushing towards mainnet, um, rewriting a microservice in another language is, is a very low priority. Uh, agreed. Yeah. I, 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 would, I would love to do that eventually. I want to make sure Coinos is out and working first. <laughs> agreed. Yeah. Good call. Um, cool. All right. Uh, so I think that that addresses most of my questions regarding microservices. So let's go uh, over to smart contracts a little bit more. Mm -hmm. um, so looking at smart contracts, uh, anybody can deploy a smart contract. Uh, but it seems like the, the secret sauce or whatever term you want to use here to, uh, you know, building something foundational like consensus or governance as a smart contract, um, that's the, the system level privileges. Is that accurate or am I understanding that incorrectly? Uh, yeah, that, so that's, that's a big part of it. Um, so the way, yeah, so the way the, um, yeah, so the way the coin of source system is, is designed is there, there's a whole bunch of, we call them system calls, um, all of this is very much inspired by operating system design and we're kind of trying to build Coinos like sure. an operating system. And so there's a number of system calls. Some of them are providing utility that other contracts will need. Um, these are things like, Hey, what are, what are my arguments? Um, can I call another contract? You know, uh, uh, doing cryptographic functions, certain things like that, that we, we want to have native implementations um, or require native implementations because of the nature of the call. And then there are um, system calls that are specific to blockchain. And so uh, one of those is um, for overriding consensus is um, I believe it's, I believe it's currently called um, process block signatures. And so it's saying, hey, this block was signed. We need to make sure it's signed by the right person and that they, they have the ability to sign and produce a block right now. And so in the, the genesis state of Coinos, there's a single key that can produce blocks at whatever rate it wants. Um, and then when we launched the test, so when we launched the test net, um, I, I started up a brand new node. Um, I had this key. And I, and I was just producing blocks once every 10 seconds. And I was the only person that could. And then with a different key, which is which actually is a user key, um, upload a new contract. So at this moment, it's, a, it's just a user contract. There's nothing special about it. Sure. Um, but then within, this, within the system itself, it has the capability of upgrading itself via um, an operation we, that it's called um, uh, set system call override. And so what it, what it allows us to do is say, well, there, there was a system call and it previously executed native C++, um, but we would rather have it run smart contract code instead. And so now as soon as we set that, instead of that one key being able pr to produce whatever it wants, it now calls into a smart contract that implements the proof of work algorithm that um, can verify, yes, you did work. 
it is difficult enough and you properly signed everything. And then in addition, it also then calls out to the, uh, to the coin contract to tell it to mint a block reward to this user. Okay. And so those, so both the POW contract, the coin contract, and then even our resource system, uh, the mana system, those all essentially when they were uploaded were um, user uh, contracts. And then through uh, a privileged operation were upgraded to become system contracts and system uh, specifically system call overrides. Gotcha. And so, um, yeah. And then and, and on essentially on the right now, like to, to sort of to upgrade something by default is just that single Genesis key. But on the main net, that will actually override the override logic. Okay. And, sure. and when we override the override logic, we are adding in on-chain governance. Right. And now, whether or not something can override a contract or not is actually going to be determined by some sort of distributed consensus. Gotcha. And so, you know, when we launch everything, we'll, 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 we'll get stuff set up and then, you know, at some point we we – we lock ourselves out and turn the keys over to the community. Okay. And yeah. Then, okay. <laughs> so, yeah. And so, and so essentially uh, the, yeah, the primary, like the primary difference between a system contract and a user contract is um, system contracts get, can be called via the system calls. Um, and so the, the cool, the nice thing there is if there's, uh, say if there's a bug in a system call, we, uh, and your contract is calling that system call, well, now your contract has a bug in it, right? Sure. It's, 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 it's not, the bug doesn't reside in your contract, but because it's calling buggy code, your contract might behave, um, might behave improperly. Um, we can, you know, we can then upload a new better version, you know, a version of that system call that um, fixes the bug and then override it. So now it was pointing to the buggy code. It's now pointing to the good code. And because your contract is always calling it via the system call, um, as soon as the, the good code is in place, we've fixed the bug in your contract as well because it's now calling the good code. Gotcha. So, so system calls get called by other contracts or, or system contracts can be called by other contracts via the system call, uh, via, yeah, via the system calls. And then um, there's a few others that uh, might be called separate from system calls. Right now, the, the coin contract exists this way. Um, and the, the, yeah, the difference there is it just, it has uh, system level privileges. And so um, we've sort of, the uh, the the database that uh, contracts can write to um, each contract is is partitioned into its own section of the database and it can only it can only access its information um, okay. and system contracts have a whole like separate portion of the database that they all can access gotcha. and so that allows you know um, yeah that allows different system contracts to interact a little bit more um, on a lower level via the database, they don't always have to call out via um, to the contracts. Um, and that's also important um, 
for how we can upgrade contracts, you know, so that, um, so that data can persist. So if you've got a system contract that like the coin, let's use the coin contract as an example. Um, if it needs to be updated because we found a bug in it, um, we want to be able to upload a different version of that contract, um, but and, and to fix it, but then it is, you know, the non-buggy version uh, have access to the same data. We don't want to have to like port everybody's balances over from one contract to another. Sure. So we sort of just give all the system contracts a big uh, system database space uh, just for them. Gotcha. Okay. So, um, so really when we say system level privileges, um, it's really that the, that call to system call override is permissioned. Um, yes. And, and today on testnet, uh, you, the devs of the Quinos group have the keys to that, that call. Mm -hmm. Um, but once consensus, I mean, sorry, governance is built out. That'll be, you know, if you get past governance and, and the community agrees, then the keys are, you know, we all agree you, you get to call the system call override for your contract. Yeah. And, and yeah, and that, and that might be something like, um, yeah, governance and enough people have voted. Yes, we want this change. And then, um, it gets called in when that, you know, within, you know, within the proper context. Right. Right. So, and, and, and all of this is, um, all of this is following, uh, you know, modern operating system design. So, you know, it's sort of, it's not, it's not entirely accurate, but it's analogous to, um, you know, like requiring administrative privileges on a machine. Right. That's sure. sort of like system mode. It's sort of like that lets you do a bunch of extra stuff. Um, and most, you know, most of us just configure like, yeah, I'm an admin. I can do whatever I want whenever I want on my computer. But, you know, when, you know, at, you know, at school or, or something like that, we you don't have the administrative privileges. You're asking someone else for a password or or whatnot. It locks you down for what you can do in an attempt to, you know, to protect that computer in the same way. You know, um, you imagine the system system privileges are the are administrative privileges on Coinos. It lets you do whatever you want to do, but we don't want anybody. We don't want everybody to do whatever they want to do. In fact, we don't really want anybody to just be able to do whatever they want to do. Right. Um, but there are certain things we we want it, uh, Coinos to be able to do when enough people have reached consensus about about that action. Right. Yeah, it makes sense. And then um, calling back to what uh, Andrew and I talked about in the first episode of the podcast, mm -hmm. uh, we, we, we mentioned, you know, if you're going to create your own blockchain, you can um, you can kind of bootstrap it on the main net and then eventually, you know, decide to spin off your own blockchain later if you want. So, so really what that's talking about is creating your own, governance, whether that's just, I have the keys to this, or, um, you know, I create my own sub community on Coinos, um, and we can do whatever we want within that domain. And as long as, since we're not acting the, uh, uh, the system level calls of the Coinos mainnet, um, you know, we've created a fiefdom <laughs> or whatever you want to call mm -hmm. it. Um, cool. Yeah. So if there's a lot, a lot to unpack there, but that's that's really helpful with my understanding. So, 
Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know if that's more technical or, you know, than previous episodes. No, it's good. Um, I, I, I like to go deep into the details. Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, so uh, I think my, my last question here is around upgradable smart contracts. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, if you're doing the, the system call override, then really what you're doing is you're upgrading that system call. Mm-hmm. To, to something else. Uh, but I've heard the term upgradable smart contracts thrown around, which implies to me, and maybe I maybe I have this wrong, that you're putting new functionality behind the same address. Mm-hmm. Right? Is that yeah. correct? Yes. So um so yeah, that that's gonna that is probably gonna be the primary um the primary method by which user contracts uh, can be updated. So, um, you know, right now, like, you know, on Ethereum, no contract is upgradable. And so if you want to plan for some sort of upgradable upgradability, uh, you have to pre-plan that in like version one of your contract to be able to set up like, well, if, if I need to, I need to be able to forward things to these other addresses and sort of, you have to have a, a succession plan in place before you need it, um, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. Um, but so, but on, on, uh, on Coinos, uh, essentially we're, we're taking the stamp. So, so there's a couple things that are at play here. So first is uploading a contract to an address simply requires that you, have you can sign for that address. So whatever, whatever your private key is, you can derive an ad, a con, an, uh, you know, essentially your, your address that you send coin to is the, also the contract address. Sure. You can, you can generate a private key whenever you want. So it's, it's trivial to create a new contract address. Um, and we've made the decision that um, uploading to an address simply requires signing it, which means, well, you could just keep uploading whatever contracts you want to your address. Um, it's your address. You're allowed to do with it what you want. Um, however, it may not be in the best interests from a business perspective that you can just change the rules of a contract whenever you want. Um, people people might not like that if uh, all of a sudden, like you know, you're running a, a say like a burn pool contract. And then all of a sudden you upload with something else and you take everybody's coin. Like right. they're, they're not going to be happy about it. So um, combined with that is our, um, our authority system. Um, it's, uh, it's not yet implemented, but it's fairly well specced out and planned um, and should be, should be getting implemented somewhat soon. Um, and that is by default, the key that, you derive the address from is required to sign for anything that that address requires. However, there are, there's, there's a special contract entry point that you can provide via your, whatever contract exists on your, on that ad, on that address that can override um, authentication behaviors. So essentially, um, Let's say you 
you're wanting to transfer coin um, and you have this override, what will happen is as soon as the coin contract asks is, is this user authorized? It will call your contract with this specific uh, entry point. Um, I believe right now we're calling it just require, um, I think we're calling it require authority or uh, no, authorized contract. Um, and it'll say, hey, this contract wants to run. Um, it's asking for your permission, you know, all these sorts of things. And you can say yes or no. Um, okay. Which, and so by, you know, which means you can, uh, we see this, uh, you can implement um, hierarchical multi threshold multi-sig. Um, are you, I don't know if you're, are you familiar with, with that? I'm No. Okay. So norm, so multi-sig is just, you know, you can have uh, um, two of three keys required. And then hierarchical means like you could have links to like, well, um, there's another multi-sig over here. I want two or three of mine. And then one of mine that can be satisfied is actually like another two or three multi-sig. And so you can implement some very complex um, authorization setups, but all of this can be implemented in a smart contract. Likewise, um, I can now create, uh, I can create unique logic for how my smart contract is updated using, using that. So it's a contract within itself can effectively define the behavior by which it is upgraded. And so you can then create, you could create your, you know, your Uniswap competitor and in its upgrade logic, you can have it defer to its like own governance model. Okay. Um, if you want it. Okay. Um, so you essentially we're, we're trying to, we try to create what's the simplest system possible that gives the, the developer the most amount of freedom. Um, and that's, that's what we came up with. I like it. Um, yeah, you've got me thinking now. I, <laughs> I'm imagining what this opens up. I, I think I'll have to sit with that concept for a while before I yeah. have and, a cohesive. <laughs> yeah. And then likewise, if you want to up if you want to upload a contract and you don't want it to be upgradable, you just override this this function and always return false. Like no no one's ever authorized to upload update this contract. Well, and now you have Ethereum's semantics. Gotcha. Okay. So if if you you know if that's if you're a developer coming from like an Ethereum background and that's what you're more comfortable with, that you can implement that. You can okay. do all of those same um, that's those same design patterns. Those are all completely supported. Um, but we're hoping that over time, uh, you know, people will come up with some really interesting things. I um, if I have I, I I've got some ideas for. Um, from the user side of, of creating smart contracts that allow users to manage more complex permissions. Um, and so having us having a singular smart contract that saves all that information, manages it, and then providing a tool that allows a user to, Hey, uh, run this tool. We're going to upload a contract on your behalf and it's going to then delegate that responsibility to this contract. And now, now you can have a nice web interface and make changes and things like that. Right. Um, so I think there's a lot of cool opportunities and, and certainly, um, it doesn't, it doesn't lock us into one sort of, uh, authorization scheme. In fact, right. 
it, it doesn't lock, it doesn't lock anybody in Coinos in and allows it to evolve and, and change as people come up with um, new different useful primitives. Yeah, yeah. The um, the upgrade paths that I think make the most sense to me are, I mean, obviously, I could make one that only I can upgrade, mm-hmm. centralized authority. Um, I could uh, have a few people that I decide to trust. You could have the majority thing you're talking about. Um, but then uh, also creating like your own governance token um, mm-hmm. and then having, you know, you need to reach consensus of the holders of your, your token in order to upgrade this contract. So that, mm-hmm. it sounds like that would enable that. So that's cool. Awesome. Yeah. So that's a lot less to implement uh, given you're, you're covering a lot of that groundwork in the Coinos uh, framework so yeah yeah the, the yeah the benefit there is um in fact from even yeah even from our perspective there's a whole lot less we have to implement sure and we don't we don't have we don't need to launch with a multi-sig contract mm-hmm. that can happen after launch so sure. the, the advantage is we don't need to write it it's one less thing we need to write in order to get the coinos mainnet out um so that means hopefully we can deliver on the coinos mainnet a little bit sooner which everybody's, I think, in, in support of. Um, the downside is we're not going to launch with multi-sig, but we'll launch with the possibility of multi-sig. Um, right. And, and certainly we, we want to relaunch the testnet one more time, hopefully, uh, and it will have some of this, this, this stuff in it or should have all of this stuff in it. And so, um, you know, I know we've got some really active community developers. I'm, I'm hopeful uh, one of them, I don't know, Maybe maybe Julian Julian if he's listening, um, will uh, will want to write some multi sig contracts, um, some user facing stuff, and uh, provide a. I don't know. I know he's working on the on the um, a web wallet. Uh, I, believe, right. I believe it's called Condor. Yep, Condor. Uh huh. So I don't know. Maybe if he wants to provide multi sig support in the web wallet, uh, he'll he'll do some of that work. That would be great. Yeah. Um, yeah, and, and regardless of who does it, I think uh, on the last episode, Julian said he was gonna he was gonna try to tackle the uh, the JS CDT. Mm-hmm. So that would be yeah. <laughs> he's taking on a lot, but it's, yeah, yeah, looking forward to whoever uh, can help out. So and and I think that that's what I'm really excited about about with how we've hope with how I hope we've designed things is uh, in a way that is really rely like. It is reliant upon um, developers to maybe add some of the more nuanced functionality, um, but also it means uh, there will be more eyes on it. And if a better way of doing something comes along, we're not boxed into you know our our implementation. So yeah. long term, I think there's just way way more flexibility. Very cool. Well, awesome. Um, I think we've just about killed this topic uh, there's probably a lot more we could go into but that'll have to be a future episode so that's mm-hmm. all the time we have all right yeah so, yeah if thank you, you for the discussion. Think about it and have me back on when you've got more questions sounds good i'm i i know i have more questions i just need to think on this more so yeah very cool well thanks michael this was great yeah i enjoyed it thanks for having me on absolutely all right everybody join me next week for the coin press podcast where i'll be interviewing nathaniel caldwell so looking forward to that Bye for now.